In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to study the last chapter of Second Timothy, um, chapter 4. Last week we finished chapter 3. Does anyone remember what we talked about last week? No? There was some uh, talk about the, m um, the end of times and how at the end people are, there will be perilous times and Good. So he he said that in the last days there will be perilous times, and he described all of these um, different qualities of people that we should expect, um, like they are proud, blasphemers, disobedient, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. This long list of things um, that that he had listed, warning Saint Timothy, Saint Paul, warning Saint Timothy about what to expect, and and you know as we said that that the last days is 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 like it's not like a defined time. You know, because St. Paul, when he was writing this to St. Timothy, he, he, he told him essentially that these are the last days, right? The last days um, at, at his time, the last days in our time. So the last days are lasting a long time. Um, but things continue to get to get worse, of course, and we see that um, playing out in our in our society. Um, so this is our the last chapter here. He continues. Um, he says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Okay, so he is he is reminding St. Timothy of who he is serving. Sometimes when we um, feel accountable um, for a job or a service or something that we do, we consider that our, our accountability is primarily toward a person because the person is the one who's like overseeing us, right? Like maybe the priest feels they're accountable to the bishop right and the servants they're accountable to the priest um and the children are accountable to the parents right and so and the you know maybe the employees are accountable to their bosses so the problem with this is that we feel that when that person is unaware of or not present right not unaware of what we are doing we feel like we have the right to maybe be flexible with our responsibilities um, and maybe not do a diligent job or maybe not see that, you know, really the one that we are accountable to and the service that we do and the work that we do is really before God. So that's why he's saying, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. Ultimately, the judge is God. So like you could have an employee who gets by very well and gets, you know, good performance reviews and gets promotions and gets, you know, raises and gets all the stuff. But in the eyes of God, maybe this person is not diligent in their work. They just know how to do well at work because they they manage to please the right people. Or a person who maybe is not diligent in studying, but because they're very smart, um, because they have the right connections or whatever the case might be, then they're able to be successful um, and get good grades um, and graduate with high marks, not because they are diligent, not because they are hardworking, not because they are honest, but simply because they are they are successful at playing the system in a way to get what they want. Um, the same thing is true in the church. Like the priest, for instance, might appear to everyone as being a very like righteous person um, because he's very good at, at acting, right? Or he's very good at like not allowing his weaknesses to be shown, right? And everyone sees him as being a very righteous and good person, but in reality, like he struggles with many things, um, or maybe he's even hypocrite, um, or maybe he, in front of the bishop, like he will, you know, always always act as though he's doing the diligent job that he should be doing when in fact maybe he's not so it's very easy for us all of us to game the system right to 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 appear to people whether it be our peers or to our superiors that we are doing well and that we are doing the right thing um, to receive praise from them but here like st. Paul makes it clear that our praise comes only from God because he's the one who judges both the living and the dead right at, at his appearing and his kingdom so at the time of the second coming God will judge those who are still alive and he will judge those who already died okay um, and so this is the judgment of everyone and so he's reminding us all that we should care about the judgment of God not the judgment of man right and the judgment of God of course God is you know the way we the way we we see God right um, can vary from person to person some people will look at God and say well he is the harshest judge He's the harshest judge. Why? Because he knows every everything. He, you can't hide from him. Every weakness that you have, he knows. There's nothing you can do to hide. 
other people might look and say, no, he is actually the most lenient judge because he is the most merciful of everyone, right? Um, everyone else will call you out for the mistakes you make, but Christ, he will cover your sins, okay? But actually, God is perfectly both things together. And the mystery of how is it that God is going to judge and how we don't even understand the judgment of God, just like um, the story that Christ said about the people who, who were saying, um, to him, you know, Lord, Lord, you taught in our streets and you, you were with us and we were with you and all these things. And, and then he responded and says, get away from me. I never knew you. Right. So maybe in the mindset of human beings, right, we know God and God knows us. But when it comes to comes time for the judgment of God, maybe he's going to judge in a way that was very different than what we expected him to judge. Um, how does God judge the heart of each person? It's a mystery. Right. How is he going to d discern um, the you know, what each person should have done. Only God can judge. O only God can be um, the judge. Also, one other point I want to mention here is when he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's using the word God to, 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 to refer to the Father, right? Because obviously the Lord Jesus Christ is also God. Joe, do you have a question? Yeah, so Sharif asked on the chat, chat um, how can being self-accountable fall short from being accountable to God? Well, there's self-deception, right? So it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves. So for instance, I can set for myself a standard, right? That maybe is not the right standard. I set myself a standard according to what I know I can do or what I already do. So maybe for the things that I'm already very good at, the things that I already do well, I, I place a high standard because I feel like it's not really... It's, it's not judging me. The standard is not judging me. I'm, already, I'm comfortable with the standard. And maybe I use that standard to judge others. Be like, oh, you're not doing this, right? And I, well, I feel comfortable because I know that I'm doing it. But when it comes to the areas that maybe have weakness, maybe I am more uh, flexible with those standards or I don't place it such a high bar for those standards. And so because I know that it incriminates me, right? So I instead place a low bar. So again, I don't feel guilty, right? So, so, so it's important for us when we are being accountable, when we are self-accountable to ourselves, that we set the standard according to God's commandments and God's standard not according to my own, you know, skewed standard. Yeah. Yeah, I was also reminded when the question came about uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where St. Paul says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing ab against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Yeah, very good, right? And, and so like St. Paul is saying, maybe when I judge, when I look at myself, I can't tell my weaknesses even, right? You know, it's very hard for us to tell our own weaknesses. It's very easy for us to see the weaknesses in others, right? But to see my own weaknesses, that's not easy because we have all kinds of biases and we try to excuse ourselves a lot you know we do the same things that other people do but when we do them we're excused when other people do them they're bad people right so it's important for us to and this is why accountability shouldn't just be to ourselves this is why like in the church when we say we go to our father confession and we are accountable before him because he can see m me right um, he is a voice that speaks to me and tells me like okay no i think like the this path you're going is wrong or these decisions you're doing is wrong things about me that i don't realize about myself but it's something that is definitely um you know it's, it's definitely something i need to hear right so so definitely the idea here of judgment right that god is the judge and not not any other person so he goes on again he's giving him like instructions right as the bishop right what is it you should be doing so he says preach the word be ready in season and out of season Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, okay? So it emphasizes the idea that a person who is a Christian, who is a believer, is a believer at all times, right? Like what is in season and what is out of season? What does it mean? What is in season? Okay, like when it's fashionable, when people are going to accept it, that could be considered in season and out of season, maybe when you're with people who aren't going to accept the word that you're preaching. Okay, what else? At all times, right? But what would be considered in season? Because maybe in season is the time where you would expect the preaching to be done. When do you expect preaching to be done? 
and the last days, okay. In a time of spiritual revival, like uh, so, when you're in a fast or like in a you know in some period that is supposed to be a time where people. Like okay, so like there's specific times, maybe where we say, okay, this is where pre like for instance in church, right? Like church is in season, right? Like like when you go to church, you're like, okay, it's time to hear the word of God now, you know. So let's stop doing everything else and listen to the word of God. But then when it comes time to listening to the word of God on our own, maybe outside or or when we are doing something else, maybe that's out of season, right? And the person who is really consistent and faithful and a believer at all times is not going to make a difference, not going to differentiate between the idea that, okay, well, I'm in church now versus I'm not in church. Or the times of prayer. Maybe, yeah, there are times of prayer, but maybe I also pray at other times. I pray throughout the day, right? I pray both in church and I pray outside of church, you know? And the way that I act also, right? I act um, the same way, whether I am in church, whether I'm with my friends, whether I'm at work, whether I'm alone, whether regardless of where I am, I am the same person, right? So being ready in season and out of season means be authentic and sincere and real and consistent in who you are and don't act one way in one setting and act differently in another setting, okay? So and this could be a problem because sometimes we fall into the idea that the the public forms of worship that we do in the church which is like say during liturgy is the primary and only time where we are talking about god or praying to god or worshiping god or you know where where, where we are we are considering and thinking about god and then the rest of the week is like for me like sunday is for god or sunday morning is for god or sunday for two hours or hour and a half is for god and every other time is for me right and so that mindset kind of makes it so that it's like we're doing God a favor, right? God, I'm do doing you a favor by coming to your house and spending a couple hours here um, in your house, and then I'm going to go back out, and now it's my season again, right? My season is my own time, my own thing, what I want to do, and then your season um, is this. Well, here St. Saint Paul is saying, no, preach the word at all times, right? And you see this like in the scripture, like in the book of Acts, Many of the of the scenes that we read about in the book of Acts were not formal. There was not a lot of like formal times of preaching or formal times of interacting with people. These circumstances kind of happened naturally. Like, for instance, when Paul and Sil Silas were in prison and they were singing hymns and then suddenly there was an earthquake and the, you know, like the doors of the jail open. And the Philippian jailer came, and he saw what happened, and then they went to his house, and he was baptized. Like, there was no formal church service, right? Like, they were just being themselves and being faithful men and, and, and allowing their faith to be seen, that which had an effect on other people. And then they continued, and they talked to that person, and they, they baptized him and his household, right? So it, there wasn't, like, a specifically pre-allocated time to be a Christian. And then the other times, no, I could just, you know, I'm, I'm off duty kind of thing. Um, they were uh, Christians at all times, okay? Then he goes on and he says what? Convince, so uh, talking again about preaching, right? So convince, right? Convince is focusing on the mind, right? Like how do you convince someone of something? You convince them through logical argument, right? That's how you convince. Like a person maybe has a certain opinion um, and you want to change that opinion. So you come in and you present evidence uh, to change the mind of that person. Right? So maybe this could be laying out the details, the facts, the information, the things, and to in a way that will try to convince a person of the truth. Okay? And then rebuke. Rebuke is not just about convincing. Rebuke is now also calling out the sinful practices of people, saying these actions that you're taking need to change. And this is, of course, one of the roles of the bishop. Right? Um, one of the things that would bring sorrow to St. Paul in a, a lot of the letters that he would write um, is he, he, he would say, like, I think it was, I can't remember if it was First or Second Corinthians. Like, he would pretty much said, um, I don't want to come and visit you now, because if I visit you now and I find that all of the problems that I'm talking to you about are still there, it's not going to be a nice visit, because it's going to be filled with rebuking. I want to give you a chance to resolve the issues that, like, I've talked to you about, so that when I come, right, it's a nice visit. 
right? Um, if you've ever been in a church where the bishop comes and he finds something not to his liking, uh, things can turn very quickly, right? Um, like I was, I was in a church one time, and um, I don't know if I should say, <laughs> but th- there was something that happened, and and it caught his attention, and it like, and he rebuked the whole congregation. And of course, nobody wants that, right? Like, you want to enjoy like your father when he comes, right? But this, and he does as well. Like, it's not like, it's not like he does. He he desires, and he's happy to rebuke. But it is part of his role, right? And that's what the bishop does. So so to to rebuke, um, to exhort is like to encourage, right? So you have the rebuke, which you could call it like the negative, like you're you're calling out the bad. Um, but exhorting is like maybe emphasizing the good, and 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 bringing attention to like the good things and encouraging people to grow and encouraging people to learn and and maybe um, helping those people who feel like they are downcast making them feel accepted right all that also is part of exhorting and then everything with long suffering and teaching so as we said um, when we were also like studying in the book of acts like the the when saint paul and the apostles they would go preaching they they experienced so many uh so much resistance right so much resistance and um the the, the example that comes to my mind is when um saint paul went to lystra uh and he met the people there in lystra on his first missionary journey um when they f- saw him perform miracle they thought he was a god and they started worshiping him uh, as a god um, and so even though he is like trying to preach the truth, they are, they're, they're, they're not understanding. And then when some other Jews who were against St. Paul came, they spoke badly about him to the people. And these same people who w- were worshiping him as a god, now they hated him and they wanted to kill him. Right? So how do we maintain long-suffering, meaning patience, uh, while we are trying to teach, while we are trying to rebuke, while we are trying to exhort and convince and do all this? This is, again, when he's speaking here to St. Timothy as a bishop, he's saying you have to... You will suffer. That's why it's called long suffering. Like you will suffer long um, by the time that the people will understand. And when you think about again, like the amount of effort that the push bishop puts, like the, the amount of effort that Amba Yusuf, for instance, put to develop the diocese to be the stat status that it is today, with all the services that are in it today, with all the churches, with all the priests, with all the servants, with all the understanding, with the all the policies. Like that's not something that happened very quickly, right? It took decades, right, for this to happen. So as that is being developed, as you are trying to build up another person, you have to be very patient with them um, because they might go astray in many different ways at many different times. And you don't want to lose that person, right? You don't want to just say at the first sign of resistance or the first sign of ignorance or the first sign of, like, fall, okay, you're just going to, like, okay, I'm done with you, right? No, you have to be patient with that person. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Okay, so he's saying, you need to be long-suffering, you need to convince, exhort, rebuke, uh, you know, preach, all these things, because there will come a time when the people will no longer want to hear the truth, right? They will not care about the truth anymore. You know, maybe there was a time where people were ignorant. They didn't know the truth. And so they lived according to their own understanding because they thought that was the truth, right? And you maybe at that point you could convince them of the truth and they would change. You know, be like, okay, now I realize, now I see that the way that I was living was wrong and the way that I should be living is this, so I'm going to change, right? That's what we would like, okay? Um, a step further from that would be, okay, someone doesn't even want to know the truth, um, and they don't care about the truth, and they they want to live their own way, okay? A step even further from that is there is no such thing as truth. Maybe that's where we are, right? There's no, there's no concept of what truth is. There's nobody co- talks about what is right. Everyone just says what they want to say, right? They say what they want to say. They want to do what they want to do. It's everything is driven by emotions and desires only, and you can't even call out a person and say what you're doing is wrong, right? It's impossible to say that something is wrong. It's just, oh, that's a different perspective, okay? That's your truth. That's your version of things, right? Um, and, of course, we see this in the news. Like, it's almost impossible to get news, right? How do you even know what's true in the news? I mean, you don't know, 
right? Like because everyone is presenting it without even a desire to, you know, be faithful to the real world, right? All the main focus is manipulation. How do I get the group of people who are going to read my article or watch my video or whatever to feel what I want them to feel, to think what I want them to think, right? So I'm going to put whatever it is in there because my goal is not to inform. My goal is to manipulate. My goal is to impart certain thoughts and ideas into a person that fits what I want them to, to believe, right? So this is the time where people are not going to endure sound doctrine. They will not endure the truth at all any kind of truth when you come with like the brutal truth because the truth can be uncomfortable it can be painful right because the truth can be difficult to hear and when we hear it we don't want it right and so we no longer endure it we don't want we don't care about the truth at all but according to their own desires because they have itching ears they will heap up for themselves teachers right what is that meaning they will find people who will tell them what they want to hear so their consciences are not you know itching so they're not they're not like um they're they're not um like feeling bad that they are not abiding by the truth they will surround themselves with people that tell them that what they believe and what they do is the truth right like the example uh, in the old testament um of king ahab with the prophet micaiah who was um a, a true prophet the only true prophet that he would talk to all the other prophets false prophets they would tell him what he wants to hear they would tell the king oh if you go to war you're going to win um, except for this one prophet, when you go to him, he says, no, you're going to lose, right? And that's why the king said, I hate him, right? I hate him because he tells me um, that th th what is what I don't want to hear, right? So I surround myself with yes men. I surround myself with the people who tell me what it is that, um, that I want to hear. And so um, this is what it says. They will heap for themselves teachers and turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. Fables, of course, are stories. And the things with stories is they're false, but maybe they make us feel good, right? Like a person who um, doesn't like the reality of their life um, can retreat into a fantasy world um, where they imagine their life being different and maybe indulge in the feelings of the fantasy, right? That's why fantasy is powerful, right? When you, when you don't want to deal with the reality of your situation, you fantasize about it being different, right? And maybe for some time, even if it's briefly, you you exact some kind of joy from the fantasy or imagining that it's actually real, right? So that's the fables here. The people who want to live away from God, the people who want to imagine that you can be successful in life and, and joyful in life and, and, and fulfilled in life away from God, they're going to uh, try to substitute anything else for God. And it doesn't matter that it's not successful. It doesn't matter that it doesn't work. It doesn't matter that the results are disastrous. It doesn't matter that, you know, as our society is moved for so far away from God that everything collapsed. It, it doesn't matter because they don't want to address it as truth. They're going to just close their eyes to it and, and, and pretend it doesn't, it's not happening. For instance, this is the case with like the transgender issue, right? So many people, they just, if you look at the results of, the, you know, like 90%, they say like around 90% of people who, who, tra who transition, detransition, like 90%. So like if you were to look at the real statistics of how successful this whole transgender movement is, when you say 90% of people who, who did it, they change their mind and go back. Well, nobody's addressing that truth. Nobody's looking at that and saying, you know what? Well, maybe this isn't right. Maybe this doesn't work, right? And people just shut their eyes and are blinded to it. And they just kind of like go on in a fantasy world, um, promoting something, hiding the truth, so that people don't understand it or see it or realize it, so that they will manipulate them to do whatever it is that they want, right? And it's those, you know, very few voices that stand up against the crowd, that tell the world information that nobody wants them to know um, and are persecuted for it. Those are the ones who are the truth tellers, right? Because the truth is not popular, right? It's rather fables because the fables fit my feelings, Right, they, they, it's an indulgence of feelings rather than an indulgence of the mind. Truth is all about the mind, right? Like what is true appeals to the mind, but what is a fable, what is a story appeals to the emotions. And we live in a time where our, where our emotions have taken over the mind. Our emotions are everything. Reason is out the door. There is no reason. It's just emotions, it's just feelings, it's just how we perceive things, our perspective, you know, relative, right? 
So everything is about a fable. Everything is about a story. Everything is about wh- how it makes you feel. It's not about what is real. It's about how it makes you feel. And as long as it makes you feel good, then do it. Right? That's the purpose. That's what that's what the, the definition of happiness, right, in the world now is do what makes you feel good. It doesn't matter if it's true or not, right? You know, people now having like um virtual girlfriends and virtual boyfriends, well mostly girlfriends, I think. Right? Why? Because it makes them feel a certain way. It's a computer program. It's not actually it's not actually a sign of you being loved. It's not actually a sign. It's not actually companionship. It's not actually anything. But it fools you into thinking that it is. So for people who want a girlfriend and they can't get one, well, this is good enough. It, it, it simulates it for those people who can't get it, right? So, again, it's a fable. And the people who indulge in the fables, right, they, they go further and further and further from the truth. Because what's going to make them to bridge the gap to come back to the truth, the brutal reality of truth, is much harder to face, Right? The fable is much uh, easier to swallow. You guys never heard of this? <laughs> okay. Huh? It's AI. They do with AI now. Someone married a robot, I think, or uh, something like that. And there was a robot that became a citizen of a country. Uh, but 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 yeah, now with like all of this uh, new a generative AI stuff, like now they have like very advanced like uh, AI humans, I guess. Um, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So he's wanting to establish Saint Timothy and his ministry. So in the midst of the environment that he's talking about, where nobody cares about the truth and they heap for themselves teachers and all that. He's wanting St. Timothy to be guarded and protecting himself. So he says, be you, uh, but you be watchful in all things, okay? Be careful in navigating all of this because even the most you know, righteous person can fall, right? Even the most righteous person can fall. So it's not, it's not that anyone is immune from this, right? So be watchful, be careful, okay? And because of the world being so contrary to our values, you will endure affliction. Like You're going to endure affliction because um, you will suffer for the sake of the truth that you are trying to promote and trying to preach. Um, do the work of an evangelist, meaning don't just adopt the mentality, which is so easy to adopt when we see everything around us is contrary to us. Is like, okay, I'm going to go into my hole. Like I'm going to go into the cave. I'm going to just put up all kinds of protection around me. I'm going to make sure that nothing can penetrate it, all kinds of barriers and walls, because I don't want to be exposed to the persecution. I don't want to be exposed to the, 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 god, the, the, the godlessness. I don't want to be exposed to anything that is contrary to what I believe. And so I thank God for the church, and I thank God that we are here, and we're going to build very high walls around the church so that nothing else can get in except for you know, those who already believe what we believe. Okay, it's a very um, attractive, maybe thought. There's actually a name of it. It's called the Benedict Option, right? If you've ever heard of the Benedict Option, based on what Saint Benedict, the Catholic saint, had said, is he had said that, that there will be a time where the Church has to completely retreat from the world um, because the the persecution will be too much, or because the negative influence of the world on the Church will be so much that there's no way that the Church can even exist in the public life. It's going to be completely like an underground organization, if you want to call it. Um, The problem with this is that it ignores the command of evangelism, right? Which is the whole way that the church even started. You know, if the apostles from the very beginning would have said, well, you know what? Um, We don't want any negative influences. We don't want people confusing the theology. We don't want people who are going to persecute us. And so we have like, what, a couple hundred believers now at the time of the Pentecost? Okay, we're good. We're going to just stay here and we're, we, we, know, we know what we believe and we're protected and we're not going to stir up any pots and we're not going to get ourselves in trouble and we're not going to preach to people who are, hate us or, or, or that have contrary values to us and we're just going to stay ourselves and this will be the church. And maybe uh, their families, when they have kids, will grow up in the church and the church would have you know, like eventually just died off. Right, because it wouldn't have spread, 
like the way that it did. But when you look at the work of St. Paul, when he goes to these places around the world, like we sometimes we have this opinion that somehow like the days that we are living in now are like the worst, most perverse, corrupted time ever in history. But it's not. I mean, at the time of St. Paul, he was literally stoned for speaking. You know, as much as we say that there is corruption and there are there 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 is um, unfairness in our society and you know, like people don't want the people speak bad about Christianity. But I mean, I, I at least I can speak for myself. I've never been stoned. Like I've never I've never gone and spoken at some place where there were people from various beliefs and have been stoned, right? And if I were to be stoned, like those people would be taken to jail for what they did. Like there are still rights, there's still a sense of fairness. In America, I'm talking about America. I'm talking about America. No, no, there are other places where, yeah, I mean, you, you, you will be killed if you try to preach. Like in Egypt, for instance, you can't try to convert an, a, 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 a Muslim person to a Christian. You, you will be, you, yeah. But what I'm trying to say is like, in our society that we live in, that we tend to have this view that, that things have never been as bad as they are, right? It's not true, it, right? It's not true. If, if, if the apostles in their day and in, in their atmosphere were able to go and convert uh, pagans, you know, uh, and, and, and against them was all of the, the, the Jews who were trying to kill them, who were chasing after them, who, who brought them, they, they ended up getting killed, right? They all got killed. But that didn't make them to stop, right? That wasn't like a sign to them. It's like, you know what? Things are too hard. So we're just going to retreat into our own little world, um, and that's it. No, the church, were the, the function of the church from the very beginning was an evangelistic one, one that shares the message of salvation with other people and is not just sitting on it content with what we have, right? It was always trying to bring more people into it, right? So he's saying do the work of an evangelist just because I'm telling you that there will be afflictions, right? I'm telling you to endure the afflictions, not to escape the afflictions, right? He's saying endure, not, not to um, escape. And then fulfill your ministry, meaning this is your ministry, this is your service. You have a responsibility toward those who are on the inside, and you have a responsibility to those who are on the outside, right? Your responsibility is both. It is not just to serve only those who are on the inside, but it's also to serve those who are outside, yeah. So I feel, uh, sorry, <laughs> like we go back and we talk about the day of Pentecost, and we talk about St. Paul and all the things that everyone endured and how they went out and then you're talking about don't build walls, don't try to, you know, just keep everything protected in this cave. I kind of feel like that's what we do. Because when you think about evangelism and going out, I can't say the Orthodox Church is what comes to mind, right? And there's not a concept of us going out, right? Like, I don't know, like, and I was born and raised in the church, I don't think outside of community service that we go out. And even community service, like, it's like our big toe goes out. Like, we're we're not really, like, and I, I can't tell if that's a church thing or if it's a cultural thing, like, in, you know, Eastern churches where there were persecution from where we've been from, right? And so now we come here where we're not being persecuted, but we're still not going out. Um, and I'm very, because I, like, I know someone from Austin where they had... A specific group where they taught them how to like go out and she would like invite people to her place for coffee and like like it was so intentional that it's like I'm going to go talk to someone about Christ today and I feel like I grew up and I was taught you pray before you eat and you maybe have an icon wherever you are and you and it's great and if someone comes and asks you then we pull up have a reason for the season and it's all of this stuff right but we're not, we're waiting for people to come to our doorstep and our doorstep I feel like is heavily gated and hidden because we're not the majority in terms of like Christendom in this country, right? We are a minority in this country. So in order for us to be seen, I feel like we do have to go out, but I don't think it's a standing on the street corner kind of go, I don't know what that looks like. And I feel, I wish someone would tell, like teach me to go out, right? Not just wait for people. Can I also mention, because I was going to say something very similar. Uh, I'm thinking about, like, okay, schooling, right? We're, we're 
all talking about Coptic churches, right? We want to make all our kids go to, like, if not Coptic, then specifically Christian churches, right? And part of the argument is to do with what they get taught, right? But also, how are they going to learn to evangelize and be live in a world where they're not popular if they weren't exposed to it from a younger age? Okay, let me try to remember about everything. So I'm going to address this point first. Um, so, the apostles, when they started with Christ, they first stayed with him until they learned. And then once they were ready, he sent them out, right? Whether it be the 12 disciples or the 72 apostles, they started with like training. And then once they were trained and that Christ felt that they were sufficiently trained, he sent them out, right? And and at that point, he was still with them. So, I mean, they would come back and they would report to him what's happening. And then he would, you know, he would talk to them. He would correct them and they would go out again and whatnot. So the idea of the young children, right? The young children, the, the biggest thing that they need is to learn the truth and not to be deceived. Because the world and the school system right now is very deceptive, right? Like intentionally indoctrinatingly deceptive. It's like consider that it's in the hand of the devil if you want to look at it to that extreme so if you send your kids and, I, and again I, I know that for many people it's the only option and I'm, I'm not trying to say it's you can like pull your kids out of school like we do the best with what we have right but if 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 you send your kids yeah and if, if we adopt the mindset for the purpose of evangelism that we intentionally want to send our kids there then we're putting them in an environment when they're still very uh, inf influenceable, susceptible. They, they, they they're get confused easily, and we see it. Like, we see the kids come to church, and they're like, okay, yeah, what's wrong with transgenderism and homosexuality and all that? Well, where did they learn that? They learned that from school. And the best efforts that we are able to do are not necessarily going to remove that from them because they're getting influenced at such a young age. So the idea of having special schools for kids I think is still very important because they are not yet mature enough or understand enough to be able to do this work and even the apostles weren't at the beginning right they had to go through like a, p a period of time of training of safety before they could go out and be the evangelist now you can argue what is the right age I mean you could say okay like if 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 you had a kid who grew up in a like a, say a Coptic school and through middle school and then in high school you want to send them to public school maybe maybe that's right I don't know like like you can uh, you, we, we can talk about when is the transition happen because that transition obviously has to happen I mean it's definitely gonna happen in college right um, the transition has to happen but but I think the principle is that there should be a period of time of safety and then go out but not to say that the entire church is that right indefinitely. Because I think that then says essentially that we're ignoring the work of evangelism completely. So the point that you're saying, so the best, like prove, it's been proved that the best form of evangelism is like conversational evangelism, meaning individuals that are inviting other individuals that they know well already, acquaintances that they have, to the church. It works better than lectures it works better than street evangelism where you're just going to go around talking to random people or passing out bibles or whatever the case might be um, that is the number one best way to bring new people to the church um, is is that so when we try to promote evangelism we are trying to and we had like an evangelism workshop like about this we try to promote the idea of each person feeling comfortable enough with what they believe to go and talk to other people in their life about it. Like if, think about like if you had like, okay, we have like what? Let's say 400 people in the church, right? So if, if every single one of those 400 people brought only one person, just one person, right? Then that would double the size of the church, right? Just through evangelism, like in one year. Like if, if, you're, if everybody's job was to, to get one person to come to church, right per year that would be huge in terms of like the number of people that would come and when that person comes they would have somebody to sit with they would have somebody to talk to they wouldn't feel like they're just thrown into something completely foreign and, and, and strange to them so that's why like 
the conversational type of evangelism is the most effective, and that's the one that I think we should be promoting the most. It's not necessarily the case of we're going to have an organized group of people. They're going to go out and do something. Like, what is that thing that they're going to do? And who is it they're going to do it with? Right? We try to create resources. We try to do things like that so that when people come, like we have it for them. Uh, we've done that. Right? But in terms of the active evangelism, I feel that the most effective way is on a one-to-one -one basis. And, and, and it has worked. There have been people who have came to the church because they were invited by their friends. There are also people who come because they research on their own, right? So the other thing is having, like, you know, as much as, it's, as much as we're able, there's information. Like, the Internet now is a way for people to research and study and, and understand more. Like, we put every single sermon, every single Bible study, every single, like, there was actually a couple that came. They were Chinese, and they told me that they were listening to our Bible study in China, right? So that's a type of evangelism, right? So even though I didn't go to China, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the, the, the media allows us to have a deeper reach for people that would otherwise have not have heard. So that's another way. But again, like, yeah, definitely that takes somebody to take initiative. Like, hey, I'm interested in something. Let me research something. I'm, you know, let me try to learn more about something. But at least it's there. Right, at least it's there. So that's kind of what I would say about. I'm not against the idea of there being a group, but we thought about it and we've tried different things. But I mean, in the end, I feel like the conversational way is the best way. Yeah. Well, do you mind if? I, okay. Okay. <laughs> but <laughs> I feel okay. So even if, let's say, I'm called to go out and have conversations, again, I don't. I I can't. Like our church is so like intertwined with culture. I can't tell if it's like church or culture or whatnot, but I don't think, again, and one of the characteristics of the Orthodox church is that we talk about God, right? Like I feel like we come to church and someone's talking to me about God. I think we experience God, but to talk about that experience, because that's really, I'm not just gonna go up to a person and be like, let's read, you know, Lamentations of Jeremiah together, and let's, right? Like, that's not the conversation. Usually it has to do with, like, my life or their life, right? There is a personal experience with God, right, that either they don't have, right, and that's what we end up talking about, or that I have, and that's what we're talking about, right? And then, oh, well, how did you get to this point? Okay, come, like, come and see, right? And so I feel like we, and I, but I also feel like it is, there is still this like cave mentality that we have. Because even among sister churches, we don't talk, right? Like if we're going to do this as a unified front, then we more and more, we what less and less become a minority, right? Because once you add up all the numbers, now it's significant, right? And we don't even open those doors. And so how do you break that cave mentality? Because I feel like it's, you're saying don't go into the cave, and I think we're there. Like I think we're in the cave, and we we haven't really come out of the cave. What I'm trying to say is the idea of the cave is on an individual basis. It's not a whole church or not. Like there are individuals in this church and in other churches that invite people, but then there are other people who would never invite anyone, right? And so, as a church, like as a church as a whole, what we can do is try to make the church as welcoming as possible provide educational opportunities for people who come, invite people who are like coming, visiting and making them feel welcome and so on, right? But how do we get them to come? I think that's the point that I'm making where you have to instill inside each person that it is your responsibility to be an evangelist. Don't wait for the church to organize some kind of administrative team of people that are going to go and do it. And that's not how the early church was, right? The early church, like each of the apostles said, hey, I'm going over here. And I'm going to talk to these people over here, right? So all of you, all of us have people that we know, right? And it's our job to, um, like, the people that God puts in our path, as we see is appropriate, as we have relationships with them, to talk to them, uh, you know? And again, that's not going to look exactly the same for everyone. But whatever opportunity God opens for you, um, use it. And I agree with you that this is there's a lot of resistance to this. But it's the resistance is not doesn't have to be toward a group of people. The resistance is on an individual level. Like, I mean, I think I had mentioned, like I teach an evangelism class at the seminary and whenever I give the 
the project that the people have to do is to actually go and evangelize the five people. You don't have, like every other class, you have to write a paper and take a test. My class, the only thing you do is you evangelize the five people and you write uh, like, a, like a journal entry of what happened. And that's it. And the number of people that are resistant to this idea, it's like unbelievable. Some people have failed the class because they refuse to do it, right? So, so all I'm trying to say is, like, yes, there is resistance. Yes, there is cave, like, like we're saying. But the cave is because each individual person chooses to be that, not because the church as a whole is, is that. You know what I mean? So that's why I'm, I, I promote the idea of evangelism. I promote it on an individual level, and I think the individual level is the most successful one if people, c if people want to do it, which we should do it. Was there another comment? Yeah, me too. Uh, the one thing <laughs> about uh, what I've learned so far about evangelism as well is that planting seeds is just as big of a deal than just speaking the direct gospel, right? Like just planting a small seed. If you go to someone in the mall and you see them and they're standing, just saying something. It doesn't have to be like the whole truth and going through all these things, but planting that seed. I know many believers before they were believers, those are the things they remember the most, and that they share that in their testimonies, that they remember God was chasing them before. So I think it's important to plant those seeds, if not the whole truth. Thank you. For I am, being, uh, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So he's speaking about the fact that he's about to be martyred. Right? This is, again, as we said, the very last epistle that St. Paul wrote. So he's, he's getting ready to be martyred, and he's letting St. Timothy to understand this. Right? And, and so he's saying, I have fought the good fight. You know, like he's looking back at his life, you know, and blessed is the person who can look back at their life without regret. You know, that if any was any one of us would on the on you know, on our deathbed would be able to look back at our life and say, I fought the good fight, like I didn't waste my time, I didn't I wasn't lazy, uh I didn't do the wrong thing, I wasn't a bad influence on people, I, I no, I was a good influence. Like and I served God and I fulfilled the call and I did everything. Like that's like this moment is the moment that everybody wishes that you would be able to look back at your life and, and conclude that I did all I could do. Right. Um, and I say I have finished the race, meaning I endured to the end, like all the times where St. Paul was suffering in whatever way uh, in his life. And that I'm sure in his mind was like, I need to endure to the end. Like there will be an end of suffering. There will be an end of persecution. There'll be end of all of this. But for now, I'm still in the race. And I'm still running. And the person who still runs the race has to be uh, fit, right? And they can't give up. And they have to endure. And they have to keep fighting. And that's exactly what he did. He says, now I have finished, right? Now I am I'm at the end. Um, and I have kept the faith the whole time. So because he sees that he was uh, a good servant of God, and of course St. Paul has, uh, you know, uh, a sense of God's presence and and God's you know will in his life definitely more than the typical person that he can speak with confidence about this right and he says what there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness like God God is going to reward me for all the good that he has called me to do that I have done right and he will give it to me on that day right not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Meaning, this crown is not just for me. It is for every faithful person. It's for every person who fulfills the call that God has called them to and endures and fights to the very end. This, this crown is offered to them. Be diligent to come to me quickly. So he's asking, he wants St. Timothy to come visit him before he dies, right? But unfortunately, um, Timothy was unable to, to visit him. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, and Titus for Dalmatia. Um, Demas was mentioned several times um, in the letters of St. Paul. 
Um, in, in the letters of Philemon and Colossians, he was listed uh, along with others in the ministry. So there wasn't anything negative said about him. He was just one of the people who was mentioned as being doing service with St. Paul. Um, but however, by the end of the ministry, this man, Demas, had left the ministry. And he says, what? Um, because he has forsaken me, having loved the present world. Like he went back to the world for some reason. He left the service for some reason. He, he, he desired the, maybe the life that he had before or for some other reason was distracted and went back. And, and you can see now the stark contrast between the two of St. Paul who endured the afflictions to the very end. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And the, there is laid for me the crown of righteousness compared to this man, Demas, who was also called and for a time labored, right? But, um, but in the end, he, he, he left and he fell short. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Um, so uh, Luke is St. Luke the Evangelist, who was tra a traveling companion with St. Paul in his missionary journeys. Um, and uh, Mark is St. Mark, right? St. Mark, who St. Paul had refused to take with him uh, in the second missionary journey because he had departed prematurely in the first one. Um, when he left, um, uh, St. Paul was upset and he refused to take him in the next one, and that's why in the second journey he took Silas um, uh, instead of Barnabas, because Barnabas and he disagreed, right? Barnabas wanted to take Mark on the second journey. Paul didn't want to take him, so they had an argument, and they went separately, um, and instead Silas went with Paul for the second missionary journey. But here, by the end, he's saying, get, him with, get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful, meaning it's like Mark redeemed himself, right, in the eyes of St. Paul. Okay, like he sees now he is, he is like a good servant, okay? Um, and Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So this man Tychicus, he's mentioned in the book of Acts and several of the letters, uh, the Pauline letters. He also was uh, one of the traveling companions of St. Paul. Um, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come and the books, especially the parchments. Uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. So possibly this Alexander is the same one that was mentioned in First Timothy, um, and Saint Paul had said about him that he delivered, uh, he, that he was delivered to Satan, that he might, that he may learn not to blaspheme. So we don't have all the details about exactly what he did, but he, again, he is mentioning here again as a person who was uh, causing trouble. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Uh, amen. So um, during, so remember, St. Paul was tried twice. The first time, um, uh, he was he was imprisoned and he was released. So during his first trial before Emperor Nero, um, none no one was standing with Saint Paul. That's why he said, um, "No one stood with me, but all forsook me." Right? But the Lord is the one who stood with me. So that's what he's referring to here, is in the f his first trial um, in in Rome, um, nobody was with him. Yeah. where it says um, bring the cloak and the books especially the parchments what is what books and parchments is I, I've understood or I've heard that it's paper for him to continue writing more letters or the ones that he's already written is there any I mean it could be it could be that he wants more papers um, it could be that it's specific books that St. Timothy was aware of that he that St. Paul wanted to read or it's, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know. Greet Prisca and Achilla and the household of Anicephorus. So Prisca is another name for Priscilla, who was mentioned um, in Acts. She and Achilla were a married couple that served uh, with St. Paul. And then Onesephorus is also mentioned in chapter 1 of this epistle. Um, Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Uh, Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. So the final greetings 
And these are the last words that St. Paul wrote um, before his martyrdom. Any questions about this chapter? Yes. Oh, sorry, St. Timothy from St. Paul. Um, very specific instructions about evangelize, do the work of the evangelist, rebuke, etc. And you said that the rebuking is the role of the bishop. And St. Timothy was a bishop, if I remember correctly. Um, so when reading this personally and these kinds of messages or these kind of books, where do you discern between what we should take personally as a general um, teaching to us versus those specifically to dedicated roles in the church? No, that's a good question. Um, all of these things can apply to all of us. Um, maybe the difference is that it's a question of authority. Like anyone who has authority over another person has the, uh, has the responsibility to rebuke. So for instance, parents have the authority to rebuke their children, right? And rebuke meaning to, you know, to call them out as doing something wrong and potentially even to punish, right, and discipline and give consequence, right? Um, it couldn't be done in the reverse. For instance, like the, the child cannot rebuke the parent. Actually, that would be considered disrespectful. And if the child wanted to, you know, speak to the parent about something that they believe the parent is doing wrong, they can do so, but they do it in a different way, like with a, in a different way of communicating. Or if the priest wants to say something to the bishop, can approach him in a different way, not not the same way that the bishop would approach the priest. So definitely when you have a relationship where there is like one person and authority over the other, all of this applies. Now when you have peers, like so for instance friends, so friends might also rebuke out of love, again maybe in not in the same way because there is no authority, right? It's not like a friend has authority over another friend, but they can depending on their relationship, like if they have a close relationship, they can still say, hey, the thing you're doing is not right. I can't punish you. Like, I'm not going to give you a consequence for it. But out of love, I'm, I'm showing you, I'm bringing to light, like something that maybe you don't see. So all of these things, um, you know, we share these responsibilities in different w capacities. Uh, a bishop, of course, has this for the entire church. Like he has this authority and this responsibility for the entire church. Um, an individual person, of course, wouldn't, all right? But there is a sphere of influence that they do have there where they do have that responsibility. Right, I get the part about the role. I think that makes a lot of sense. But when reading this, it's easy to assume, if I'm going to take everything personally, it's easy to assume that every single Christian should be a missionary. But the early church, missionaries were very specific, and those that received the mission were very specific people also. At what point did Christianity kind of turn into this idea that every single person must be a missionary and evangelist? Could it be like an overinterpretation or reading too much into messages that weren't necessarily directed to the congregation? Everyone is an evangelist in the sense that everyone, uh, everyone's actions are going to either attract people to Christ or deter them. So in that sense, everyone is an evangelist even without speaking, right? Now the question of... Um, what type of formal role does a person have? And that's why I go back to, like when we're speaking about evangelism, and I speak about what is conversational evangelism. It is not a formal role, right? It is, a, it is you um, loving your friend and wanting their salvation, right? That's essentially what evangelism is. Because evangelism is not based on um, a title, but it's based on desiring the salvation of others. So if I really had a heart of love, right for people then it will hurt me to see that other people are not saved right and so it's born out of love it's not born out of rank so even though there, are, there were the rank of evangelists there were the rank of those people who were apostles who wrote the gospels who formally were commissioned by the church to go and to preach right but at an individual level for each of us the work of evangelism is still done um, just based on my desire for the salvation of the world. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Okay, we can pray.
In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in everything, and we ask that you strengthen us, and you guard us, and you protect us from all temptation. We ask, O Lord, that you keep us safe in the midst of the wickedness of this world, and help us to remain faithful to you, while at the same time we bring the knowledge of the truth to the world around us. We thank you, O Lord, for the example of St. Paul, and all the letters that he wrote to the early church, and how we benefit from them. We ask, O God, that you grant us a mind to understand, and to apply all the things that he wrote. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion and the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.